It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Civil War soldiers, fearless, strong, and sometimes female. Welcome back to the Fearless and Proud Podcast. I'm Jerry Willis. We're talking about women soldiers during the Civil War. Across America during the 1860s, it was illegal for women to walk the streets wearing a pair of pants, much less put on a uniform and fight on a battlefield. In fact, the idea of a woman fighting as a soldier was so unexpected that nobody had thought to write a law to prevent it. Truth is, women have been fighting since ancient times. In this country, for example, Molly Pitcher is said to have fought alongside her husband in the Revolutionary War until he fell at the Battle of Monmouth. She picked up where he had left off, swabbing the cannon and loading it. George Washington sang her praises. And so it was, 150 years before women were officially given the right to fight in combat, Hundreds of women were doing just that on Civil War battlefields, says Professor Shelby Harrell Heidelbaugh, author of the book Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War Mississippi. One woman, I talk about her in my book, uh, I laughed when I, when I read the account that when she was discovered, she said, well, nobody said we couldn't fight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why not? was nothing in the military code specifically dealing with women. It was just socially unacceptable for them to do that. It was socially unacceptable for them to even wear pants. When a woman was simply discovered wearing a pair of pants, she was arrested and or fined for doing so because clothing defined the genders 160 years ago. And so not only would you not suspect a woman to just try to serve as a soldier, you wouldn't even think that a woman would even put on a pair of pants. And, and and as a man, you wouldn't even know what a woman looked like wearing a pair of pants. And so these women just appeared to be um, young boys. And you saw that mentioned in the newspapers when they were discovered, they were, they were mentioned, uh, newspaper writers uh, referred to them as appearing like a lad of 15. Uh, something something to that effect. And there were hundreds of thousands of young boys who served in the Civil War, 16 years old, 15 years old. And of course, these young boys, um, you know, they hadn't grown facial hair yet. Um, their voices hadn't changed yet in some regards. So it was very easy to uh, for these women to appear to be young boys. Um, they, they just simply blended in. And in some cases, they adapted or adopted uh, male mannerisms. Some of them, you know, they learned how to play cards. They, they drank and um, chewed tobacco and brawled and, and took on a lot of the male mannerisms and characteristics so that they, they would fit in and they would not draw attention to themselves. Could these women shoot guns? Were they good shots? Absolutely. Um, a lot of these women, probably a vast majority of them actually, came from working class or farming backgrounds. And so, of course, working on a farm, um, they were used to performing, no pun intended, manual labor. And so um, they learned how to shoot. They work with their hands. They chop wood. They, the, they perform physical duties. And so when they uh, enlisted, they already possessed the skills necessary for them to become successful soldiers. Um, 
There, there are no accounts that I've encountered so far indicating that they put their lives in risk or the, the lives of their male comrades because of incompetency. Um, these women knew what they were doing. It was a different time. There were no intensive medical exams to enter the military, no gang showers. Well, <laughs> no showers at all. It was said you could smell the army before you saw it. But for women who could act the part, that is, imitate men, they could fight. Dr. Luis Stinella Borrego, adjunct professor at Miami-Dade College, author of The Risen Phoenix, talking about the first Cuban woman to fight, Loretta Velasquez, and a Canadian-born soldier, Sarah Edmonds. If you read Loretta Velasquez's story, she has to observe, well, how do other men who would be my age act? Do they curse? Do they swear? Do they talk about women? There's a certain braggadocio which with which you have to use to act in a certain way. And that's kind of where women like Loretta Velasquez, women like Sarah Edmonds and others would observe their surroundings and take note of well, what's the proper way to behave? What should I be talking about with my fellow enlisted men in front of officers? And it's not easy. It's not easy. Were these women, generally speaking, were they prepared to fight? Could they shoot a gun? Could they carry the equipment that men had to carry? Could they endure the assaults? Yes. I mean, the, the, the simple answer is yes. I mean, in the case in the case of both Loretta Velasquez and Sarah Edmonds, for example, and those are the two I know the most because their stories compare. They're the only two who write uh, memoirs within a short period of time of their service at the, you know, in the Civil War period or immediately after the Civil War. And it's interesting. Sarah Edmonds grew up in Canada um, and she most likely had experience doing the same chores that a boy would do on a farm. And that involves lifting things, that involves involve, involvement in planting. And presumably it also involves some degree of shooting. A lot of your average Civil War soldier, especially from the Midwest or what they would call the old Northwest, they have experience. Guns are guns and the culture of hunting and that that's ubiquitous among a lot of people both north and south and women living on a farm would have been used to that would have been used to especially if you're on a farm and it's in the north where you're not a slave owning family or even in in uh, the back country in, in in the south where slavery is is not as prevalent women are are engaged in as much uh of the heavy lifting so to speak as men are on farms and um in the case of Loretta, she's married. Her first husband is himself an, a, a U.S. soldier and later on a, a, an enlisted in the Confederacy. There's some evidence there that she learned. She kind of implies that she learns how to shoot from him, that she kind of tests him. It's like, well, how do I, how do I fight? If I want to fight, how do I do this? And he kind of reluctantly helps her out. He knows that she's, she's disguised. Her first husband knows that. So... Um, Yes, I, I think in, in, the, in the main, female soldiers have the same kind of background, come from the same kind of experiences as a lot of the enlisted men on both sides of the conflict, Confederacy and Union alike. But there were other dead giveaways, like breasts and menstrual cycles. Again, Professor Shelby Harrell Heidelbaugh. A lot of them would just simply bind their chests, and you have to remember too that the uniforms were 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 ill-fitting. Um, it's joked that there were two sizes, too too large and too small for for military uniforms, and so it actually would not have been that difficult to hide themselves. Um, 
their chests because they did bind themselves. And like I said, the uniforms were ill-fitting. As far as their um, their cycles, um, I do talk about this in my book. There were some cases where um, a woman was betrayed by her cycle. Um, uh, of course, the evidence was, was on her clothing. But, um, and you have to remember too that Victorian society being more modest uh, than obviously we are today, um, they really did not discuss these matters um, openly. And so we have to remember though, scientifically, that when a woman's body is placed under duress, physical duress, the cycle just simply stops. And so that is likely why they they probably didn't even have to worry about it. And I, I can't think of a better situation where, the, where a woman's body would be placed under duress than during, during war. <laughs> you know, you're marching miles and miles a day with, you know, bad food, bad water. Um, the physical strains, of course, the mental strains uh, were tremendous, um, getting shot at, of course. So um, so it, it's likely a, a the fact that they they probably did not even have to deal with it, didn't have to worry about it. And how were these women trained? Were they trained? Here's National Archivist and author of They Fought Like Demons, Dee Dee Blanton. There were camps of instruction early in the war. So the new recruits were sent to the Civil War equivalent of boot camp, where if they didn't know how to shoot a gun, they were taught. If they were taught how to drill. They were taught how to stay in formation, all of that stuff. So the women learned along with the men. And again, for, for women that were coming off the farms, they already knew how to shoot a gun because every farm had a rifle. And so I don't think that was a problem. We, uh, we researched the average Civil War soldier carried about 30 pounds of equipment. And, you know, most of it they carried on their back or around their belt and then their rifle. So that's 30 pounds. That's nothing. Women carry around 30-pound children all the time. So that part wasn't hard. Uh, the endless marching, that's endurance. Uh, women have endurance. It's And, again, a woman who came from a middle or upper class background probably would not have survived in the Army because her life, wasn't difficult before the war. I mean, it was. I mean, if you read about how women had to do laundry, oh, my Lord, that's harder than, than any day, day marching during war. But women who were well-educated, women who were teachers, they, they served their country in a different way, you know, the pen being mightier than the sword in their case. So women weren't at a huge disadvantage during the time period, given the way war worked back then and of course we all know that that the big killer of soldiers wasn't bullets it was disease and and women of course would fall prey to that along with the men beside them especially you know all these farm boys and farm girls who were suddenly in a camp with thousands of other people and they had never been exposed to to the kinds of illnesses that a more urban population had dealt with and that was one of the reasons so many soldiers died of the measles or typhoid. Is those kind of, of illnesses ran rampant. And interestingly, that's how we find out which soldiers were women. It's because they're dead or dying 
it was unusual for women to be found out because they were, quote, acting like women. You know, they, they just looked around and was like, okay, that's how men walk. I'm going to walk this way. Here's Dee Dee again talking about the penalties for women who were discovered fighting as men. If a woman was discovered to be a woman in the ranks, the standard response was for them to be dismissed and sent home. That's how it usually worked. Because women weren't supposed to be in the Army, there's no regulations telling commanding officers what to do with them. So every officer kind of had to make it up as he went along. And for the most part, the response was to just, you know, get them out, send them home. There was a couple of instances where the women were accused of being spies, because why else would a woman be passing herself off as a man? And so they assumed she was a spy and was there to infiltrate. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any truth to those accusations that we could find. The most interesting thing to me is by 1863, the Confederate Army was no longer sending women soldiers home. We have several examples of of Confederate women in the ranks from 1863 on who are openly serving. They're still in uniform, but they've started to grow their hair out. They're going by their given name. They're no longer pretending to be men. And this really surprised us at first because it goes against all the cultural norms. But then we realized that the Confederate Army had a manpower problem, and they were having trouble keeping their their ranks filled. And if a woman had proved herself already as a good and dependable soldier, then her commanding officer was like, well, we we can't lose another able-bodied person. She can stay. Being a soldier carried its own risks, not just the risk of being found out, but what happened to women who were captured by the enemy? Here's Shelby Harrell Heidelbaugh. These women were, were not immune from the horrors of war. And of course, that includes suffering wounds and uh, debilitating wounds on the battlefield, being killed on the battlefield, and of course, falling to the hands of the enemy. Um, and, and there are no accounts to sort of document their mindset as when, when it comes to the, these women who fell into the hands of, 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 of uh, the enemy. And you can only imagine um, the, the, the turmoil they must have, uh, the inner battle they must have been um, dealing with. Because, you know, on one hand, all you have to do is to reveal your true identity and you would probably be, be free. But in doing that, you run the risk of perhaps drawing unwanted physical attention, um, rape, um, for instance. There, there are no accounts of, of that happening. Um, but what do you do as a, as a female prisoner of war? Again, do you, you, know, do you run the risk of, 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 of uh, being raped by revealing yourself? You may go free, but you, you may not. Or remaining... Um, as a prisoner of war and enduring all the horrors, of course, that comes comes with that. So um, it, it's hard to even imagine um, what that, that life was like for these women. So why did they serve? Dee Dee Blanton talks about motivations. We think that as a group, 
you look at women soldiers in the Civil War as a group, uh, the three basic motivations was love, money, and patriotism. One thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of women soldiers were poor women. They were working class women. They were immigrant women. They were women whose economic prospects before the war weren't great. And women were very restricted in how they could make a living for themselves. And so for working class women, going into the army was, it was a step up. I mean, and that's the story we see throughout American history is men enter the army as a way to move up in the world. And women saw it the same way. Another significant motivator was love because close to half of the women who went to war did go to war with a loved one. We have a number of husband-wife teams. She didn't want to stay home while he went to war. We have uh, women going to war with their fiancés. Were they afraid we they would lose their, their loved one and, and wouldn't be able to be with them? I mean, what was the thinking here? Well, I think the thinking is, like Martha Lindley, for example, uh, her husband was going to war, and she... She didn't want to be left alone. She would rather share the dangers of war than be separated from him. So there was that. There was you know, women were expected to be the nurturers. You know, some women said, well, I have to go with him. So if he gets hurt, I can take care of him. And with couples who were engaged, you know, the thought of being torn apart from each other, they just, they just said, well, come with us. We had at least one or two uh, brothers and sisters. Sister went with her brother, uh, at least one father and daughter. So not all of the women who went into the army did so by themselves. And women who went in with a husband or significant other, you know, they had, they had a helper. They had someone looking out for them. Again, senior military archivist Dee Dee Blanton talks about the difficulty of researching and tracking the women who served. We would have loved to have, you know, followed a woman throughout the war and then and then if she survived, find out what her life was like afterwards. And that wasn't always possible because sometimes we would just lose the trail and we don't know what happened to her. And in other times we would know that a woman survived the war but then we lose her, probably because she married and changed her name. And if we don't know the name, it, it's hard to find. Someone who intrigues me endlessly, and I don't even know her name, will never know her name, was Battle of Gettysburg. When it was all over, the Confederates had, had lost and retreated. The Union Army sent burial parties out to the field to bury the dead bury both the Union dead and the Confederate dead. And you can imagine how horrific that work was. These were not fresh bodies. And on the day that the burial detail was digging graves, in the area where Pickett's charge had taken place, one of the bodies that they buried was a woman. It's one source, but it is the official burial report uh, sent to the War Department of how many bodies were buried that day and where on the field they were found. 
and they put it in the report that one of the Confederate dead that they buried that day was a woman. And my first thought was, well, how did they know that that one body of the literally thousands of bodies they were burying over the course of those days? Well, burial details, which is really the worst job you could get in the Army, they would search the bodies. They were searching for identification because, you know, Civil War soldiers didn't wear dog tags. So some soldiers would, like, have slips of paper in their pocket saying who they were. So if they died, their body could be identified. And so the burial details would search the bodies, but they weren't just searching for identification. They were searching for valuables because obviously the dead person didn't need it. And I'm pretty sure that's how they made this discovery that this this woman from the South died in Pickett's charge, which, you know, may be the most famous uh, infantry charge during the war. And again, we don't know who she was. We could, given this... The, the regiments that were involved in that charge, we can narrow it down to about three states, but we don't know who she was. So what did women contribute in the end to the war effort? How should we remember them? Again, D.D. Blanton. I think in a lot of ways, their their contribution is is to future generations because at the time... They are pretending to be men. They are perceived as men. And so a woman in camp is going to do everything she can to be perceived as a male. And so she's not going to bring, like, some feminine insight into the Army. What she does do is show future generations of women that women are capable of doing something like this, even though society didn't really want them to contribute to the war effort in the way that they chose to do so. Of the women soldiers that we could document and that other researchers have documented, what we found is they were just good soldiers. You know, we couldn't find any women who were court-martialed. We didn't find any women being dismissed from the Army for poor performance or bad behavior. They were just soldiers. Maybe it's not so hard to imagine that women decided to fight. After all, their husbands, brothers, and fathers did. Escaping the war was nearly impossible, especially for women in the South where much of the war was fought. And it's no surprise at all that so many women wanted to find a way to contribute to their cause, whether it was that of the Confederacy or the Union. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Fearless and Proud. Next time, we'll examine the lives of two incredible soldiers, Harriet Tubman and Loretta Velazquez. Until then. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.